We certainly are happy to have with us the De Peaches. They will be having lunch with the Apples after the service, and we just want to welcome uh, Pastor De Peach to our pulpit here in Lebanon. The Lord bless you, Pastor, as you share God's Word. Good morning, church. How are you doing today? Good morning. It is a great pleasure for me to be here this morning. Um, I'd like to thank Pastor Reed, Pastor Heller, and Pastor Brandt, the elders, the church, for this opportunity to come here this morning and to share the gospel. It is always, always a pleasure. Um, I know uh, when this opportunity comes, it is always coming from God, and so I take great pleasure in it, and I, and I, and I enjoy the church. Now, you guys invited me before, so I'm very glad to be here. Uh, for those of you who, have, who don't know me, my name is Joshua Dupiche. I was born in Haiti. Um, just as a kid, I, my parents moved to America. Depending on when you ask my parents how old I was, it changes from anywhere from five to seven to eight, so I've stopped asking them. Um, but, I, but I basically grew up in Philadelphia, and that's been my hometown ever since. So I grew up there, was raised there, went to school there, high school, um, and, um, and God saw fit that I stay there and that, and that I minister there. And so it's been about two years. I've been church planning with the Bible Fellowship Church, and it's been a blessing. I've met tons of people and tons of churches, and it is encouraging. It is extremely encouraging because uh, you guys are here. You guys are praying for me praying for the other church planners, and that is a blessing. And um, I know God will not look past that. And, and I, and I want to say thank you. My wife wants to say thank you. And, um, and I look forward to this moment and pray that God really blesses you through the things that, um, through the things that's really been on my heart lately. So let's turn together to Luke twenty-two, thirty-five, verse 35 and 38. This is a pretty interesting text because of the way it's so short and it seems to kind of interrupt, in a sense, the flow of Christ's conversation with his disciples. At this point, um, we're nearing the end of his ministry on earth, right? We're, we're nearing the cross. And at, and at this particular situation, Jesus is, is, has sat down and is, having the, and is having the last supper with his disciples. He's been waiting for this moment. He said, he said that himself, that he was looking for this opportunity, that before he would, he would suffer and he would die on the cross, that he would sit down with them and have a very good and very clear conversation with, with them. And that's very important to keep in mind because when it starts nearing death, and, some, and it's really important to pay close attention to what that person is saying because at that point, they're really saying what's, what's important to them, what's on their heart, what they want you to carry with them when, after they've, they've left you. And so Jesus is sitting down with them. He's talking with them. And we get to this particular text, and, it's, and it seems a bit convoluted. You probably have read it and just kind of went past it. But I want to kind of expound on it today and kind of help you see some things that are going on on this text. So we'll look at it verse by verse. That's kind of how the way... I, um, I preach the gospel, just verse by verse. 
So in verse 35, it says that, and he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And this is important because what Jesus starts to do is he really starts to paint a picture for them, reminding them reminding them of uh, Luke chapter 10 for us, which is when Jesus sent them out, sent out the 72 disciples, sent them out to go minister. Now, the important thing in that is that he didn't go with them, but he sent them out, right? And in their going out to minister and to share the gospel, they were, they, they met people along the way. People let them into their homes. People gave them food. Everything they had was taken care of for them. And Jesus wants to paint this picture. Do you remember this time? Do you remember how you went out? Do you remember how I sent out and you lacked nothing? You went out by faith. You trusted in my words and there was absolutely no lack whatsoever. And so Christ wants to present this to them that even though he was not present with them, they absolutely lacked nothing at all. Right. And so it's important to keep this in mind because this kind of flows through the rest of the text because Jesus Because Jesus is preparing for his leaving. He's not going to be physically there with them for the rest of their lives. And there's going to come a point where he's going to leave and they're going to have to continue this mission. And Christ wants them to know something about this mission, about how it's going to look like, what it's going to sound like. And one of the first things he wants to do is paint the picture of the perfect time. The time when they went out and it worked, when they saw miracles, when they saw people healed, when, when events were happening the way we want it to always happen in ministry, right? He brought this up to point to the fact that there was absolutely no lack. Absolutely nothing was lacking at all. But he's also bringing this up to show them that there is something that's currently lacking, but it's lacking in them. And so he asked them the question was, did you miss anything at all? Did you lack anything at all? And, they, and their response is no. The truth is they, they are lacking something. Jesus is good with that. He's good with bringing up questions to kind of see where you are and to help paint a picture of where you stand in a relationship with him. And what we'll talk about eventually later is what is it that the disciples are lacking at this moment? Why is he bringing this up? What does he want to pay for them? And Jesus goes on and it says, and and the disciples responded, we lacked absolutely nothing at all. And he said to them, but now let one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. What's important here is how he starts this next sentence and he starts it with but now. And And it's a very clear change and it speaks to the contrast that's happened within their relationship Um, within the community, within the atmosphere of ministry. The but says there is a contrast. Something has changed. It's not going to be like that, right? Christ just painted a beautiful picture for them to say that, forget that picture. You won't see ministry like that anymore. You won't go and people will invite you into their homes. You won't go and find that your, your knapsack is still good. Your clothes are still good. Your sandals are still great. Opportunities are abounding and all these things are happening. You will not see this anymore. No longer would miracles be the norm. Right? No longer would these things happen all of the time. No longer will it be that easy. It's been a paradigm shift. Something new has taken place. And when has this happened? He said, but now, now for them, it has taken place. 
And the disciples didn't quite catch this, right? Because for us, we understand that Judas had just gotten up from the table and had left and had gone to betray Christ. And so specifically for the disciples now, now was the time that things had changed. Judas left. Now he went to go get the enemies of Christ. And Christ and the disciples would be counted as evildoers. Generally, then those, anyone, everyone associated with Christ Jesus would now be looked negatively upon. There was a new phase of ministry. And that phase was not peace. That phase is war. And this is what Jesus saw very clearly. This is what he wants to impart to his disciples. So specifically, something had just happened and they missed it. Judas left the table. Generally, everyone associated with Christ would now suffer with him. And thirdly, cosmically, things had changed dramatically. Here is the last portions of Christ's life where he would die on the cross, where he would be resurrected, where now the Spirit of God would live in people, transforming them from the inside out, causing them to go from darkness to light, to shine in a world full of darkness. Now the world, the world would see a different kind of people. He said, but now, right now, these events are shaping, they're forming. Now is the very hour that they're going to take place. And in a sense, we're still in that now. And it's important that you remember that as believers. Sometimes... We think that there's peace, especially in the West. The church is at peace. But I want to tell you something. The Christian is never at peace. There is always war. Be that internal when you're battling against sin or external. When the culture is telling you to to change your views, to become more soft about the word of God where the culture is pushing in one direction and you find yourself having to push against the other. There's never peace for the Christian because we are the light, as as it says in Ephesians. It is literally our job to shine in darkness and expose the dark things of this world so that they can see and turn to Christ. We We are never at peace. Actually, in a sense, you would say we've been thrown into enemy lines behind enemy lines, sharing the gospel with people that may not want to hear it, that may not want to hear anything you have to say. And really for the Christian church, it's always, it's it's usually for me pictured as the eye in the storm. The storm has raged and we feel like it's quiet and calm. So we think everything's quiet and calm, but it's just a setup. If you don't have your mind set on the fact that you are at war against sin, at war against this world's way of thinking, and at war against the system and the principalities of this world, you will have settled. You would have missed what Christ is saying here, and you would have missed the time that's going on right now. So right now, but now, Jesus says. Right now it's happening. So let's look at that. He says to them, but now let one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. I struggled with that just a bit. 
Because as a church planner, I find myself lacking things, lacking time, lacking people, lacking resources, lacking help, lacking all types of things. Every day, I'm thinking about how much I lack to do the things I would love to see done. And so I would have want Jesus in this particular situation, after expressing how difficult and how, and how there's been a paradigm shift, to tell me to trust in the Lord with all of my heart. To tell me to not lean on any of my own understanding. To tell me that all of my needs would be met according to his riches and glory. To tell me that God is capable and to wait upon him. But he, he doesn't say that here. He's not, he's not trying to encourage them that way here. That's not even the subject here. Because right? I want him to say things like, when you're sick, you will be healed when you're suffering, you'll be comforted. I want him to say that here, and he doesn't. That's not the subject. And actually, this text, the subject is wrapped around the word sword. That is the subject. It's wrapped around the word sword. And so what it's saying is, if you can have a knapsack, and you can have a money bag, great, then you're the kind of person that has. You're the kind of person who's middle class and maybe higher, educated, smart, brilliant in what you do. You know how to manage. You know how to live life. You know how to set plans in motion. And he says to that person, get a sword. And the opposite, right, the other end of that is, and if you do not have one, if you don't have a sword, sell the very cloak that you need the, the very clothes that you need to go to sleep in, sell it and buy a sword. I'm like, wait a minute. That doesn't, that doesn't make Jesus. Wait, clear, clear, clear that up for me. And so you don't give encouragement, but instead you say, go get yourself a sword. So what does he mean there, right? Because Christ is not talking about armament, right? He's not talking about preparing uh, to attack those people who are attacking him. Because we, we know this, because shortly thereafter, Jesus is in the garden, and the Jewish leaders come with all of their soldiers, and they come to attack him. And what does he do? He doesn't fight back. Right? He actually tells them, like, don't you know? My father has legions of angels. I'm thinking I only probably would take one, maybe half of one to handle these little guys, right? But he says, I have legions under my command. I could easily handle this. But he does not. So then he's not talking about arming ourselves against people who come against us. He's not talking about, to the disciples, arming themselves against Rome. That would be craziness. Legions, they have legions of soldiers. Because we see in John chapter 18, when he meets Pilate, when Jesus meets Pilate, Pilate says to, to him, don't you know I have authority to free you? She says, you don't have any authority but what's been given unto you. And later on, Jesus says, don't you know that my kingdom is not even of this world? Because if it was, my people would come and fight for me. And so he's not talking about arming against the Jewish people. He's not talking about arming against the Romans. This does not speak of self-defense. The disciples in the garden take action to protect Jesus. They use swords. And Jesus stops them immediately and rebukes them. 
And actually what he does is he heals the person whose ear was cut off by that sword. And I think that speaks volumes. Because Jesus had spoken about how we should treat those who are our enemies, those who attack us. But here he shows it. He takes action to heal, not to harm. And the disciples think that this is about self-defense. And so what do they do? They're wrong. Right? They prepare to take action. And they're wrong. So, why a sword? Why are you asking me, Christ, to, take, to get a sword? Here's what this means. And he says to them, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. This is what this means when Christ says, Get a sword. Christ comes along, he says this, and he quotes a verse right after it from Isaiah. And the verse is about alignment, it's about associating oneself, and it's about making an alliance with Christ. Right? So he is saying that associate yourself so much with me that what I'm associated with, you are associated with also. And so what we are to do, the mindset that Christ is calling his disciples to have is a mindset that is fully bought into who Jesus Christ is, where he's going, what he's done is to fully set their minds upon him. And so that's what he's saying. He's calling them to associate themselves so clearly with his word and so clearly with his life that it becomes like a sword separating them from the rest of humanity. And so we are called in a sense then to associate ourselves with the oneness of Christ, first and foremost, particularly in his death. This is what it says in Romans 6, 5. It says, for if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him and that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And so the first association is to associate ourselves with his death. And this is what the disciples were called to determine in their mind they were to do. And we'll find out later they had not set that in their mind to do. And this is what we're called first and foremost to do, to associate, to align ourselves with the cross of Jesus Christ. Not with the wondrous miracles, Not with the great timing and the wonderful things that he's done and how great they are. They are great and they are marvelous. But the first and foremost association is Christ on the cross, him crucified, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. Now we must first look to him there for forgiveness. We must first look to him there for an alignment with God. Secondly, this is a call to align ourselves, to associate ourselves with oneness with Christ in hardship and in sacrifice. This is why Christ did not give encouragement. This is why he brought up the picture of the great time in ministry, and now he says, but now things have changed. Now go get a sword. Now you will suffer things. Have that mindset that you will suffer some things. I want to tell you something as a church. It is much better to lose all and suffer with Christ 
than to avoid suffering at all. The culture will tell you, have a good life. Ease it out. Take no risks. If you hear something that goes against the word, be still. This is, this is not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, prepare your mind. Prepare your actions. Because it's going to be like this. There will be times for, for the disciples and for us where what you have deemed to be a need that needs to be met, it will not be met. But who is more important? And so it's good to have wisdom in our actions and how we plan our life, but not at the cost of Christ himself, not at the cost of valuing him more highly than anyone else. And this we see in 1 Peter 3, where it says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. You're blessed. What? And he says, And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And this is what Christ is trying to tell his disciples. Here's been a wonderful time. Change your mindset now. It's not going to look like that. It's not going to sound like that now. It's going to come a time where people will come against you, where they'll talk about you, where they'll seek after you. Set your mind in Christ. And that's why I love how Peter puts it. He says, don't be afraid of their intimidation because intimidation will come, right? Don't be troubled by them because trouble will come. But set in your heart, sanctify in your heart Christ as Lord. This is what Christ is trying to get over to them. Sanctify him as Lord. And so God will not always meet the needs we want him to meet. But sanctify him as Lord. He sometimes will suffer for doing good. And for believing along with the word of God. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Sometimes men and women... This culture will intimidate you. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. For this is the call that he's saying that in the disciples' heart that they would have him so firmly set as Lord that nothing would move that. Nothing would, would transfer them from that. So in all things then, Christ ought to be viewed as the highest and most powerful and most amazing and most wonderful Lord of our life. You can't ever shift your mind from this. So in everything, in decision-making and planning and purposes and your directions, sanctify Christ as the Lord in your heart. So this is what Jesus is calling them to. Not to pick up armaments, not to fight, but in their mind, secure this. Make this the deciding factor. This is what's going to cut things into your life and what's going to cut things out of your life. That Christ is Lord. He has ownership. He has rulership. He has authority. My decisions are not my, my life is not my own. It's his. In the statement, 
It's assumed the way it's written that the disciples don't have a sword. And this is true. In light of this, they don't. Peter was just told just shortly before this that he would betray Jesus. And he was one of the first ones saying, no, I will go with you to the death. He thought so. But in his heart, there was space for other things. He couldn't make, he couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't have Jesus firmly planted. There was his, his name, there was his, his life. This is true of the rest of the disciples. When in the garden they are attacked, they run for the hills. Because Christ, they had not determined yet that whatever he was going to go to, I was going to go to. And this is why he tells them, shift your mindset. Decide that Christ is preeminent and most holy and more important than our friends, than our finances, than our families. That in all things, in every action, he will be first. So when events like this happen, so when things like that happen to them, they wouldn't run, but they were, they were not ready. None of the disciples were. They were ready to be with Jesus when it meant large crowds, when it meant good tidings, when it meant healing, when it meant miracles, when it meant that people could not get to Jesus, but they could go to the disciples and they could filter questions and give answers and do wonderful things. They were ready to be with him every moment of that day. The one that meant sleeping outside and suffering and being chased and being counted as a criminal. No, wait. When it meant being sick and having a difficult moment. No. Christ was Lord only when he was good. He was high only when he was, when he was good. When things worked out the way they wanted to. And so the disciples in response, and they said in verse 38, and they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, that is enough. It is enough. The disciples do exactly what Jesus does not want them to do. He's just trying to explain this to them. And what they do is they secure their lives instead of securing their faith in Christ. And that's what they do. They're trying to secure their own life. That's why every time it comes in danger, you see them running first. Instead of securing their faith in him. And this is how you know. And this is how you know whether you lack anything. Whether Christ is supreme in your heart. That instead of securing your faith in Christ, you spent your life securing your life. Making sure that it's easy, making sure that it's financially stable, making sure that there's been no risk, making sure that I, I attend services, it's fun, it's great, I invest just enough to be safe, I am careful, things are working, and you're happy. you see yourself doing that, you need to ask yourself, is Christ preeminent in every decision, in every step, in every form of my life? Is he the highest power? 
Because if he is, there is no way we can be at peace. No way. Because here is Christ saying, there's been a shift, there's been a change. It's been a major shift and a major change. So Jesus says to them, it's enough. And this is more of a rebuke than anything. In the garden later on, when, when, the disciple, when Jesus had been telling the disciples to pray, and he comes back and forth telling them to pray, the last time he comes, he says, the hour has come, it's enough. He didn't tell them to pray that time. Time had come. You missed it. You missed the opportunity. You missed the chance. He was telling his disciples there that it's time. And this is what's happening here. It's too late for him to engage them in conversation about this. They bring the sword like, like this is it. Look, we have swords. Jesus, that's sorry. You don't quite understand. I need you to change your mind about me. Christ needs us to set our minds so highly on him, so set on him, that he becomes so high and so powerful, and he takes so much of our hearts that there is no plan B or C or D. There is no easy life. There is a life set on Christ and him highly exalted. There is only that. And this is the transformation that's happening. This is what has been taking place. And so as a church, then, it is our responsibility to evaluate our hearts, evaluate our lives, look at the actions that we've been taking and say, have I set Christ in my heart as preeminent? Have I done this? Is this true? In my career, in my, in my pursuits, in my family, is this true? Or is it not? Then set your eyes firmly on the one that is seated high and is lifted up. And when you do that, you'll see a difference in your life. You'll see a a forming of a different kind of a mindset, a shaping of a new personality that will outflow with no fear of intimidation, with no worry about the culture, with no concern for where my life will go. Because as long as he is Lord of my life, then I can be at peace with that. I can be at peace with whatever comes. And so this is why Jesus does not give encouragement here. This is why he says, take up a sword. Right? Take up a new mindset. Put me at the highest seat. And then let everything else work out as it does. And then from there on, Christ goes to the Mount of Olives. He prays. The Jews come. His disciples scatter. They don't even show up because they're hiding. They're in hiding. Christ has to come to them, build them back up. But thank God, thank God. This is what I love about God. This is what I love about his ability to work in us. That even when we continue to fail him, he can work mightily in us. And so the disciples you see at this point, in this stage of their relationship with Christ, are not the same disciples you see in Acts. 
the book of James and these other books, you see them going forward, taking risk, putting their lives in danger because they considered sharing the gospel, they considered living the gospel more valuable to them than their own lives. And you see that quickly in Acts. So we can be assured that when we turn to God in this way, he will make us like this. He can do this kind of work in us. And so we don't have to be fearful. We can take joy. We can take delight in him. We can move forward. Saying, Lord, if, if you've not been preeminent in my heart up to this point, then now I want to see what life looks like with you preeminent. You at the highest seat, you informing every decision, your word informing every aspect of my life. And the disciples become like this. And we see them moving forward, pressing against intimidation, against hardship, by delighting in the Lord, even in those things when needs are not met. Even Paul says this. He said he spent two days shipwrecked he considers it all joy. He considers it nothing but to know Christ and him lifted up and him crucified, him resurrected, him in all power. When you have Christ in your mind as all powerful, resurrected, living, then nothing, nothing can slow you. Nothing can, can shift you from A to B or, or shift you like wheat because Christ foremost the most valuable person to you so this morning I call you to engage your own heart evaluate your own life and determine if this has been the case and if it is not this morning you have opportunity to walk out of here and be different because Christ has made you different so let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for working in our heart in a way that we can never, we can never produce in our own. We thank you, God, that you're transformative and you're, and you're capable and you're powerful. And Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts that everything that sets itself up against you would be brought low. And that you would be preeminent and most powerful. And that in you, Lord, we can turn to in you, Father, if everything, if anything's working in us against you, God, that you would, you would tear it down, that you would forgive us, that you would set yourself on high in our mind, in our heart. Lord, we pray this morning that you would be with us as we go out. In Christ's name, amen.